Art of Commentary is the last of the great live ad-lib shows on radio and television. And I had a great, great friend who was the greatest rugby commentator of all time, Bill McLaren. And I spent a lot of time with him. I went uh, several days up to Scotland and discussed everything with him and he told me how he went about it and that was a pretty good blueprint for any potential commentator whatever the sport thankfully uh, it was Johnny it was his right foot and the ball went over and the words just came tumbling out hello and welcome to the latest edition of the forward pass podcast My name's Graham Jenkins, and joining me today is veteran radio broadcaster Ian Robertson, who has covered the sport for the BBC for the last 44 years, during which time he has witnessed and described some of the biggest moments in the sport's history. A voice familiar to millions, and a former Scotland international, Ian has had a long and varied career in the media that continues to this day, having recently returned from Brazil where he reported on rugby's return to the Olympics. Hello Ian, and thanks for joining me. Hello, pleasure. Now, Ian, can, let's take you way back. Do you remember the first time you picked up a rugby ball? Yes, I was at school in Edinburgh, George Watson's College, which uh, the former pupils are known as Watsonians. And the reason uh, most people in the United Kingdom would know of Watsonians, they produced uh, Gavin Hastings and Scott Hastings a few years after me, so everyone knows the club Watsonians. And I went to school there. We started... Uh, rugby, it was a sort of mini rugby, but we're going back over 60 years uh, at the age of eight. But that was the first time we picked up a ball, but that was touch rugby. And then the time I got to 11, they actually had a team. So we, we played at school and it was a, a rugby playing school. Did you, did you fall in love with the game very early on? Loved it, yes. We, we would play in the interval playtime, we'd play soccer. And at uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays, we'd play rugby. And you clearly showed uh, some great talent for the sport and uh, went on to have a very distinguished playing career. I, I'm interested in particularly in your university. Obviously, you earned your, your blue at, at Cambridge. Is that something you obviously have fond memories of? Yes, that was a great year. I did post-grad in the education and I did my original degree at Aberdeen University where I played four years and captained the university in my third year and had great fun there playing in the, the Scottish Championship. And then I did one year postgraduate and got my degree and a blue at Cambridge, which was a remarkable experience because I hadn't really played any rugby outside of Scotland up to, to that point. And it was a, a very competitive uh, fixture in those days. And we had lots of internationals playing because the, it was a very, very high standard. Now, of course... Uh, if there's somebody who's outstanding at rugby, uh, they don't go to university. They start uh, with the big clubs in England and work their way up and play international rugby, and it's a very lucrative profession. But in those days, of course, it was strictly, strictly amateur. Mm-hmm. And, and can you recall the events that led up to your, your first cap? How, how did that process work? Yes, I, I got injured and had a cartilage out in January and the last fixture of every season was England-Scotland in those days. It was very repetitive and we knew that we'd start off playing France in January and we'd finish up playing England in March and I'd recovered by the middle of February and won my first cap at Murrayfield against England in 1968. I had actually played the summer before in, in 19... 
67, we went off on a tour to Argentina, and Scotland became the first of the four home unions to go to Argentina and win a test match. We won the test in Buenos Aires, and it was a, a virtually the same team that then uh, took up the, the baton again in 1968 in the, what was then the Five Nations Championship. So it was uh, uh, a huge match for, for me to play against England at Twickenham, and uh, I say that uh, I played uh, eight times for Scotland. The Argentina match wasn't given caps, but it was a, a brutally hard match in Buenos Aires, and I think I had four different scrum halves, and then Scotland selectors worked out it wasn't the scrum halves' fault, uh, but in fact I got injured and, and, and never played again. I was going to say, the injury obviously brought a premature end to your um, playing career. Do you, do you feel robbed of that, of something, of a of part of your career? It, it's just life, isn't it? That loads and loads of rugby players get injured and it's part and parcel of the game. And I I wasn't huge. I was 12 stone and 5 foot 8. And there were some lumps going around in our team. We had Peter Stagg, who was 6 foot 10 and uh, 18 stone. So there were some big lumps of meat charging around on rugby pitches way back uh, even in the the 60s and I did the cruciate ligaments in one knee and the medial ligaments in the other and you know if I'd been a horse they would have shot me so that was the end of it and uh, I was picked as captain of Scotland for the final trial uh, at Murrayfield and it was in that match that I injured the knee badly and uh, I didn't play again and I was 25 years of age. And, and were you already teaching at this stage? Because I understand you moved into teaching. Yes, I was teaching at Fetty's College in Edinburgh uh, for four years after leaving Cambridge. And the, the world works in wonderful and mysterious ways because I got the injury in uh, 1971, in January. So I missed the, the whole of the Five Nations that year and, in fact, never recovered properly to play um, at the top level again. And the following year, a great man you everyone will know called Cliff Morgan came up to Edinburgh to visit me and I met him in Princess Street at the uh, Balmoral Hotel and he said that he was switching from radio to do television with Bill McLaren. They would share the, the rugby together, and he had other things. He was very versatile, Cliff Morgan, and a brilliant broadcaster. And he said, there's a gap for someone in radio. Are you interested? I said, I am. And uh, we had a, a long chat about it. Then he said, you have to come down for a formal interview. And before I got there on that day, he'd had a long chat with me saying, this is what they're looking for. This is what it's all about, he said. And I know you'll be capable of doing it. And I know you'll do it really, really well. So I went down, had my interview and got the job as the BBC rugby commentator, we were called in those days. And that was the start of it all. And I joined at the beginning of April 1972. And within uh, six months or the end of that season, the beginning of the next season, I was actually beginning commentaries and doing club rugby and loved every minute of it. And it's uh, 44 years um, continuous service. So it was, it was a move that you'd sort of been eyeing from afar, maybe, uh, maybe a move into the media? 
No, funnily enough, I wasn't. I was very happy uh, teaching. I uh, taught English and history at Fetty's and loved the job. And it was just sheer chance that uh, uh, my injury came in January 1971. And this was uh, a year later. Um, it was in January 1972 I met Cliff, and it never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, then suddenly when he turned up and described the job, uh, I said, gosh, I would just love to do that. And I've loved every minute of it. I've uh, seen an awful lot of great moments, disappointing moments, but um, a wonderful opportunity to to follow the game that I love. Mm-hmm. So even with even with no... Uh, broadcast experience as such you didn't find it too daunting a, a position to take on I did <laughs> but, but I took it on and I got a lot of help the BBC's uh, radio is a lovely close-knit body and everybody helps everybody and when I got in I was surrounded by people all um, offering advice and uh, I, I began I think I began reading out the racing results because they felt a trained monkey could do that, so I probably could. So I read out the racing results for four weeks and conquered that and then moved into writing 30-second pieces and then broadcasting them. Initially, I just recorded them, and then people would listen and say, that's the wrong inflection. You should finish every sentence on a high, not on a low, and learnt the, the craft bit by bit over probably six months and then had the confidence to actually go and follow the the oval ball everywhere mm-hmm. and do, do you remember the actual get first game you called the, it was a, a a strange game roslyn park against coventry and uh it, it was, it was a, not a, a great position to be commentating from but i did and i'd learnt all the names and I had a great, great friend who was the greatest rugby commentator of all time, Bill McLaren, and I spent a lot of time with him. I went uh, for several days up to Scotland and discussed everything with him, and he told me how he went about it, and that was a pretty good blueprint for any potential commentator, whatever the sport. He had a set of notes that had roughly 1,200 statistics on them. Every player in the match got four lines and there would be seven or eight statistics in every line and they would be in four different colors blue red black and green and he knew the special statistics he put in the blue line then in the red line the black the blue so if a player was injured he knew immediately which color to go to and which fact he was looking and if you think of that that's roughly 30 um statistics in every player and the, in those days of course there were just um, 30 players there were no replacements or anything but even then that was 30 times 30 was 900 then he had loads of other facts and figures and it was a work of art it took him about 16 hours a week to do he would do it for scotland v england he'd do it for jed forrest versus gala he did it for every match and he'd phone the secretaries and get details of all the players and the number of injuries they'd had and facts and figures. And he said, you know, if a player is injured and it looks bad, I will be able to talk about him for three minutes without any problem at all because I've got it all there in front of me. Although, he said, I tend to learn it all off by heart every week and don't often need to look at my notes. So with that sort of 
help at the very beginning. Uh, I knew at least what I should be doing and, and how important to have uh, a, a huge bucket full of facts and figures for every match. I was going to say, in terms of professional influences and role models, you've, you seem to be quite lucky with Cliff and Bill. Yes, it wasn't a bad, if you think back, it wasn't a, a bad couple of people to befriend and, and have as guides on the, the outset of the tour uh, of the world of rugby. And, and they were both such brilliant, brilliant people and great fun and, and bon vivers. I was doubly blessed, there's no question about that, and, and Bill and I stayed friends right throughout um, our relative careers. I mean, we did turn up at a lot of matches together, but by and large, um, we were doing different matches. He would be doing Scottish rugby uh, during the season, I'd be doing the English rugby, the internationals. Um, we, we mixed and matched, um, but he uh, was just a brilliant commentator, and and he put in these countless hours of work to make sure he wouldn't be in trouble if anything happened. He was able to keep talking about it, and of course he had a wonderful turn of phrase anyway. Um, and he himself had had tuberculosis, and it was uh, when he was in hospital as a young young man. He uh, practiced doing commentaries. That's how he began. And then he got work with BBC Radio Scotland. And then he ended up the greatest rugby commentator of all time. Mm-hmm. Do you have a similar, similarly meticulous method ahead of games? He was doing, uh, although he started in 1953, he was doing largely 50 years of broadcasting. He did virtually all of it in, in television. I think he did two years at the very start in radio and it is a different art form that on television there's no point in saying it's a line out on the halfway because people are sitting at home saying we can see it's a line out on the halfway pal (laughs) and you don't state the blindingly obvious but on radio you could be driving up the m1 and you don't know where the action is so on radio you would always say so now it's a line out on the halfway uh, England to throw in, and then the the person who's not got a, a, a picture in front of him, you paint a picture for that person, and therefore you talk much more on a radio commentary than a television commentary, where you're just identifying names and patterns and uh, the, the special moments in the match you're highlighting. But if there's just a scrum, you can't just say it's a scrum, still a scrum, it's still a scrum, and know the scrum's collapsed. Um, because the, the audience on television can see all of that. So it, it's two different art forms, of which Bill was the consummate master of both. Mm-hmm. Talking of the the challenge of, of a different media, you also had a, a spell as a Sunday Times correspondent. Was was that a challenge that you sought, or sort of your, your paths crossed at that time? Yeah, I, I got uh, the offer from the sports editor of the Sunday Times in 1980, and... John Lovesey, and he met me and said that um, his, his correspondent, the long-term correspondent there was Vivian Jenkins, who was one of the all-time great uh, journalists, and he'd retired, and his successor, John Hopkins, was switching to golf. And I met him, and I talked about it with one or two of my colleagues at the BBC, and they said, you know, it'd be a great thing to do, even if you only did it for five years, and then came back to broadcasting. But I was the luckiest uh, lad on earth because 
I talked about it to the head of sport at BBC, and they said, oh, this would be great. It'll, you'll learn a lot from the, uh, the, the way writers have to write and picking the, the topic for the first paragraph and the last paragraph and how to structure it all. And they said, we don't mind you going. Uh, at the very most, the Sunday Times will come out once a week. But when I joined, it was a lot less frequent than that. It was the time that Rupert Murdoch took over and the Thompsons, who had owned it, sold it to him. And then there, there were talks of switching from the hot metal and, and sacking hundreds of people and so on. And so the first... Uh, a month and a half that I joined, the paper wasn't published at all. There were strikes. Um, and what the BBC had said was that we'd like you still to work for us. So I did the overnight shift every Sunday night throughout the three years that I spent at the Sunday Times and still broadcast on the Today programme, 7.25 and 8.25 on Radio 4, and left the, Sunday, um, the BBC on Monday morning. And, and then it would be Wednesday, usually, or Thursday, before I would talk to John Lovesey and say, right, the feature we want this week is a thousand words on. There was no point in doing that on a Monday, because some other newspaper might have scooped it and done it on Tuesday or Wednesday. Mm -hmm. But by Thursday, we'd know roughly what was still there that would be good. And then I would discuss it, and there'd be a sports editor, there would also be a general editor, <clears throat> and we would then uh, choose, the, the, we'll do a feature on J.P.R. Williams. So on the, the deciding that on Wednesday afternoon, I'd phone J.P.R. Williams in Wales, and then I'd agree to go down and meet him in Cardiff, and then we would look at the, the sort of piece we would do on one of the greatest ever fullbacks, and we would then put it together, and I would work on that on Thursday and Friday, and would have it uh, written up, and the pictures would be sourced, and it would go in as my Sunday feature, and then I would uh, also do every Saturday, of course, a match. So I would have a match report of a thousand words, and a feature of either a thousand or fifteen hundred words, depending. And that would be my staple diet for the whole rugby season. But I, it meant I was able to keep broadcasting. And England went to Argentina in, in '81. And the BBC said, oh, we'd love you to cover that tour. And I said, oh, well, I'll be doing it for the Sunday Times. They said, that's fine. Um, uh, you, you can uh, phone uh, in reports and that. And, there, and we booked a studio in the telephone exchange in Buenos Aires. And I had to go there to do the report for Sunday Times and file it from there. They were going back 30-plus um, years. And I also would cover that for the BBC. Now, when you left the Sunday Times, it obviously wasn't the end of your, your writing career because you've penned many books. Uh, when, was, when and what was the first book you, you had published? Uh, the, I think the, the first book I did was uh, for the... We had a, a rugby world book we put out with... Uh, all the rugby journalists all writing something, and I r wrote and did it. And it was just called our Rugby Annual, and we brought it out each year. And all the correspondents and a lot of the uh, other writers, the feature writers, we'd all contribute, and we did that. 
and we raised money for charity, and then that uh, transformed itself into uh, an annual we did for the Wooden Spoon Society, which is the Wooden Spoon is all rugby people all over the United Kingdom raising money for severely disadvantaged children. And again, we kept the same sort of format. So that was a general book, which I did and still do, and it raises money for the Wooden Spoon, which is a great charity. And, and then I branched out and decided that in 83, when I returned to the BBC from the Sunday Times, uh, although, as I explained, I'd, I never fully left, um, I wrote up the book of that tour. So that was my first big book. It, was the, it wasn't the happiest of tours, 1983. The Lions lost the series very heavily, and uh, it was a long tour. It was two and a half months, and going round and not winning matches was, was very difficult. And uh, we decided to do a book, both sides of the story. So uh, I, I did it with Bill Beaumont and the, a great writer in New Zealand called Sir Terry McLean. He was knighted for his services. Sir Terry McLean was the doyen of all New Zealand writers. He did it from the All Blacks' point of view with Andy Dalton. And so we brought that book out. And, of course, um, having been comfortably beaten in the Test Series and, and uh, 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 several of the uh, other matches as well, it wasn't an absolute bestseller, but it was huge fun to do and to work with all the players from four different countries and the management and that was the start, and I've done every a book on every Lions tour since then. Mm -hmm. But again, I don't do the writing. I, I put it together and get um, rugby correspondents to, to write it, but I, I make sure it comes out and um, covers the, the, the tours. And then we've done, uh, again, it's just a group of rugby writers, half a dozen, um, doing the, the World Cup, each World Cup. You've also penned a handful of biographies. How did those come about? Especially, I'm intrigued by the Richard Burton biography. Yes, that, that was uh, because the, Richard Burton's brother, Graham Jenkins, a name you will, you will know well, <laughs> as it's your name as well, um, and uh, he worked in BBC Radio Sport, and the family, uh, after Richard died, wanted to put a, a, bi a biography of him, so it was a... a as it were, a, a biography of Richard Burton. And, and I helped um, and penned the, the first edition, the first draft, and, and then we realized that it wasn't um, full enough of all the great actors who'd worked with Richard Burton because, of course, uh, neither myself nor the publisher knew any of them. And we brought in a specialist guy um, who had... That was in the world of the theatre, and he put it together, keeping um, some of the biographical detail that I'd done and the story of his upbringing in Pontry de Ven and going to school and, and on to the stage eventually. And so, but the great bulk of the book um, he rewrote, but I was given a very nice credit in it. And I did um, four books with Gareth Edwards. And I co-authored Andy Irvin's autobiography and Bill Beaumont's. Was, so I, I churned out 
I used up quite a lot of paper in, in those days. It was doing sort of 75,000 words and then sourcing all the pictures. Mm -hmm. You obviously enjoy the writing part, but I imagine your real fondness is for radio as a medium. It is, yes. I, I love radio. It's instant and it's, uh, it's, it's just a, a, a great, great... Uh, part of the media that the writing is uh, everyone has specialist topics and subjects that they like and and of course that the people who do develop television love that and the the, the writers uh, on all sport apart from writers on everything but uh, on all sport they're all steeped in in their sport and they love it and they love to get the message of that sport across and that, that's what i have enjoyed for all that time that uh, i'm very, very lucky and very, very privileged that I've had uh, such a, a run and have gone on every Lions tour since, including 1983, and gone to every World Cup as a, a commentator and uh, and every England tour abroad. So it, it's just been a, a wonderful, wonderful life. And of course, rugby people, by and large, are great people that they're um, very easy to work with, and there, there are some pretty bright guys playing rugby. And interviews, you know, that uh, the, the vast majority will make an effort to give a very good interview. Mm -hmm. Has the role of, of commentator changed much in, in, in the space of your career? I don't think that the art of commentary has changed much. It, it's, it's probably... Uh, it's easier now because there's far more assistance. For example, the television match official, when you're not sure why a penalty's been given, which happens, of course, from time to time, and you can hear the referee, we're wired up now. We weren't, of course, uh, 40 years ago, and we can hear the referee every word that he's saying to the players and what's going on and why he's awarding this and going to the test match television official and hearing him describe what he thinks has happened and why it is or isn't a try. So, so that's all been um, fairly recent, uh, certainly the last 20 years with having the, the referees mic'd up and the television match official even more recent. But the actual art of doing the commentary is, is still more or less what it's always been to get over the whole emotion, the passion, the excitement everything that's going on in a game of rugby and making sure you can translate that for the listener and get them every bit as excited as you as a commentator are. Mm -hmm. You must have some wonderful memories from working behind the microphone, but I imagine the 2003 World Cup final stands out. Yes, that, that was, uh, it was a very interesting uh, state of affairs that, that uh, we all landed in Australia at the start of the World Cup. Uh, not quite sure if it was going to be a straightforward romp for England, but they were ranked the number one team in the world, and therefore they should have been hot favourites for the World Cup, but um, the bookmakers know better, and they had New Zealand as the red-hot favourites, but, but England, it looked as if they, they would coast through the pool, they would uh, have a a good quarter-final draw because they'd be playing the losers of another group. So they'd have every chance of making the semi-final. And the way it panned out out there, they got right through to the final. 
and New Zealand fell by the wayside as they had done um, in, in each World Cup since the opening one in 1987, which they won in New Zealand, but they'd never won an away one. Um, and it was uh, huge pressure on England. But you think back to the players they had, and Sir Clive Woodward was, was brilliant at making the best use of the skills of that bunch of England players and a pretty tough cookie in Martin Johnson. So all in all, it was uh, we went out there thinking they've got a great chance of making the semi-final and therefore a great chance of reaching the final. And then it would all depend. And, and so it just built up and built up. And at no stage did England let their supporters down. Mm-hmm. They got right through. And then it was that epic match against Australia. And we were all swept along on a, it's a wonderful journey on the yellow brick road. I was going to say, it was an incredibly dramatic game. And, and, and your, um, your line to capture Johnny's uh, winning moment of he drops for World Cup glory, it's over, he's done it. Did you give any thought to that moment ahead of the game? How you might actually... Oh, the number of times I would be asked, um, of course, you rehearsed that, you practised that. Yes, of course I did. I knew that at full time it would be level and I knew there'd be scores in the added time and I knew right at the end Johnny would drop the goal. And then people say, see, I told you he knew that. <laughs> Which, of course, is so preposterous. You can't uh, know anything that will happen in a, a game of rugby for sure. And all you can do is... It, it, the, the art of commentary is the last of the great live ad-lib shows on radio and television. It's actually taking place. It's live. And it's the the ability of the commentator to uh, capture every bit of the emotion and accurately describe exactly what is happening. And it is the last great ad-lib show. And there, I I saw that they were getting into a position for Johnny to drop goal that um, Matt Dawson picked up, went a few metres, then it went to the rug, then another few metres, then another few metres, then they were in position. And I saw Johnny drop back, and then the ball came. And it's just, you, you just have to say anything that comes into your head at that time. And it was lucky I won good commentary in 44 years, but it, uh, it was good and it was great fun. And I saw the ball come back and I, I got quite excited because I thought, well, at least I've said he's likely to go for a drop goal. And it went. And can I say my position was way up in the back of the stand, which would have been about 50 yards from the near touchline. And this was in the middle of the pitch, slightly on the far side. So it would be the, the best part of 90 yards away from where I was. And when he struck it with his right foot, having said, Johnny's going to drop for World Cup glory, and I, I suddenly grabbed my binoculars and stuck them up to my head and kept talking. Because as right-footed, I thought, God, he's never dropped a right-footed drop goal before in a big match. And thankfully, uh, it was Johnny, it was his right foot, and the ball went over, and the words just came tumbling out. And I wasn't even aware of it at the time. I just did it and thought, um, good, we got that right. Then there was the restart, and then Mike Cat kicked the ball away, the final whistle went. 
and I, I didn't think anything much about it. I, I just remember thinking, oh, thank goodness that was Johnny's drop goal and not Mike Katz, because 90 yards is a long way away to be. You stand in your street and look 90 yards away and identify uh, friends of yours at that distance. So I was just a tiny bit worried. Um, but I knew it was all right because John Inverdale, who doesn't throw lots of compliments out uh, loosely, um, about a couple of minutes after the final, he said, well, that was not your worst ever commentary. <laughs> and walked off and I thought, oh, that's a nice thing to say. And it wasn't until I'd heard it back that night, I thought, oh, good, well, we, we nailed that. <laughs> uh, beginner's luck. And, and then it's been played a few times since. I was going to say it was a wonderful call, and and to be able to to find that clarity of of thought with Rob Andrew losing the plot next to you must have yeah. must have been a challenge. Yes, we called him Squealer after that because <laughs> he got so excited, he went <laughs> in the background. Do you do you feel the pressure of having to call major moments like that, or with experience that sort of pressure eases? Now, I think the pressure's always there, but in fact, I, I think I can safely say, on behalf of all my colleagues, no commentator actually thinks about that during a commentary because there's nothing you can do. You've got the microphone and you've got the action in front of you, and you have to describe it. So there's no point in worrying about it. And of course, uh, from time to time, mistakes are made, but uh, the, the, the pressure's there. But but you live with it and actually enjoy it you've got to have the adrenaline flowing through if you're going to capture the whole essence of the match be it a big game or a club game on a friday night under lights you've got to transpose that and let the listener know exactly what's going on and to give forget the pressure just describe what's happening in full volume with uh, every word in the dictionary at your disposal. I can I imagine that in, the, the enjoyment you take from it is, is a big part of the enthusiasm you still have for the job after 44 years. Yes, absolutely. That uh, still, uh, if I've changed at all, it's that uh, I've always loved the big occasion. So any international match, uh, I'm there, I'm up for it, I'm, I'm raring to go. And therefore, Lions Tours, World Cups, Six Nations Championships, the Autumn Internationals, that's the pinnacle, international. But it's the same for a player, that's the pinnacle. Uh, I love the uh, European Cup, because that goes through to a final, and there are great games in the pool stages, massive battles in the quarters and the semis. That, that, that's great. And if you go to the, the least um, fashionable of, of the, the rugby world, it'd be the Aviva Premiership. Of course, we love that. Of course, the Premiership is a fantastic uh, season. It goes on for 22 matches spread out. And, and it's each game and each weekend, there'll be great matches in it. So for, at every level, um, th there's, there's huge excitement. The effort to do a, a commentary is the same. We've got to go through the same procedures to make sure we've tried to cover every single angle and possibility and know all the statistics about the match um, and I, I just I love it as much now as I did 44 years ago mm -hmm. so uh, be it club rugby or international rugby the, the, the journey is, is for, a, for a length of time for the premiership it's for uh, 
Six Nations, before that the November Internationals. There's just so much, and it's all top quality, and the, the professional game has raised the standard, no question about that. Mm-hmm. And just to bring things to a close in, um, any top tips you'd like to give to, to the next generation of media professionals who'd, who'd like to carve out a career like yours? How, how can they succeed? Oh, they've, they've got to practice the they can go to a match and they can do the commentary just to themselves, sit there and describe it, and they'll pick it up. They'll realize if they don't know all the players, they'll have to name them 1 to 15, say, number one's making a break and he's tackled and the ball comes back and number nine has got it and passes out. But to do dummy commentaries and always have something to say, and Bill McLaren's great... uh, uh, set of rules that if a player's injured, you look at your notes, you should be able to talk about that player non-stop for two to three minutes because you've got all the details on his career and talk about him. So it's to be prepared um, and and to enjoy and relish a game of rugby and realise that you've got a very privileged position if you're going to become a commentator. You're going to have a big audience out there hanging on every word and you've got to make a very, very big effort to portray the excitement and the drama of every move, every decision, every score, everything. You're trying to, somebody who's not privileged enough to be at the game, they can be on a motorway, they can be uh, sitting fishing uh, beside a river, but they're not there, and you have to describe it for them. And to enjoy doing that and put your heart and soul into it. Well, Ian, there was some wonderful insight there, and it's been a wonderful career. Long, long may you reign behind the mic. You, you, you're showing no signs of slowing down, though. Uh, I'm thinking that I won't go on more than another couple of years at most, but I've moved into my 70s now, and there are a batch of young commentators out there, and the, the great traditions of the BBC will, will be fulfilled. And I'll be able to sit back uh, with my slippers on and think I was a very, very lucky man to have had such a wonderful opportunity. Well, thanks for your time, Ian, and thanks for helping carve out those memories.